Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Hey, this morning we are actually going to be in the book of Ruth in chapter 3. And we're going to jump right into a narrative of three different people participating in this passage and although the, the short book, it only has four chapters and it's known as Ruth, it also could be called the book of Boaz and it also could be known as the book of Naomi and it also is the book of Ruth. It could be, all, it could be named all of these things because all of them have an integral part in what's happening in this short book. This short book of the Bible is interesting too because Ruth is, is in the storyline of during the time of the Judges. And if you've read any of the Bible in the New Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, and gotten to Judges, you see that it's a dark time. And this is a, a rare instance, even in the Bible, where you see this really small, it seems like a small and insignificant narrative with the backdrop of a lot of things that are going wrong. Oftentimes in the Bible, we see these big pictures of things that have gone wrong and kings messed up and all of these kinds of things. But yet we have such a humble passage with three humble people and God working in them. And what we're going to see is, although it, it is entitled Ruth, we're going to see this woman by the name of Naomi. And Naomi and Ruth are both widows. And at one time, Ruth's uh, husband was, uh, he was uh, when he was alive, I just want you to know that, that he was the child of Naomi and her husband who passed away. So now you have two widows trying to carve a way through life. At one time, there were three. There was a, another lady earlier in Ruth, and she decided to go her own way. Her name was Orpah. Orpah kind of turns, and she meanders on her own path. And now there's this storyline, amazing storyline, two humble widows trying to navigate the ancient Near East and trying to figure out what life would be. A few weeks ago, I talked about the implications of what it meant to be a widow in, in that time and how difficult it would have been for them to live during that time and how, how there would have been such desperation if you're a widow in that time and because there was no support system, there was no uh, government support system to bail out someone or help someone to help equip them. God had a plan and we're going to see that in this passage, but we see these two ladies partnering together, forming an incredible story of God's redemption. Back in Ruth 1, verse 16 and 17, it says this. This is the, the pledge back and forth as, as Naomi and, and Ruth are, are now deciding to journey together. And, and Naomi tells Ruth, she says, it's okay if you just go back to your own homeland and do your own thing. It's okay. Like, I'm going to be, I've got my own problems. You have your own problems. You have support there. But this is what Ruth says back to Naomi. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. So Naomi then agrees to what Ruth is saying, that, that she's covenanting with Naomi, that they're going to be in it for the long haul. And then so they start making this, this journey and leaving their space, looking for a place of refuge, maybe even a person of refuge. So it journals, and, 
in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the beginning of their journey. And in chapter 2, they notice this, this gentleman who's there, and he's, he's wealthy, and he seems to have things together, and he's a godly man, and his, his name is Boaz. But Naomi, being very motherly, she looks out and she spots Boaz, and she sees Boaz as being someone who would have the potential of helping them. Let's jump into the beginning of chapter 3 and see how this story unfolds. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of yours? Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. But do not let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is laying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. We'll stop there and pick it up in verse 7 here in a moment. So what we see is Naomi doing what mothers do. She's trying to care for, give advice to, and she's trying to plot out a future for Ruth because she knows that Ruth is in a a bad spot and she, she knows that there's potential that Boaz could be a man who could help her out. What we see throughout all of this storyline with the way that Naomi interacts with Ruth is this. We see that the mother's care never ends and that the constant godly character of a mother shines through. Isn't that true? That the mother's care never ends. That you, even if you're a mother, you never stop caring about your children. It doesn't matter if they're adults. It doesn't matter if they have your, your grandkids now. It doesn't really matter. You always care about your kids. And that care doesn't shrink. It just expands over time. Amen? And yet, that's one of the things that we see. There's so many things that we could take from this storyline. But Ruth 3, right in verse 1, it says this. We just read it, but we're going to camp out here for a moment. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try and find a home for you where you will be well provided for? She sees a potential for Ruth. She sees potential, and, and what's interesting to me is Naomi is not obligated to do this for Ruth, but she's compelled to do this for Ruth. That's her mother-in-law. Unfortunately, in our day and age, if, if somebody makes reference to their mother-in-law, usually it's saying something negative or even talking about how quirky their mother-in-law is, but yet we don't see that in this passage. We see just a walking alongside, these two ladies walking alongside, and you see Naomi caring for and loving for Ruth and providing for us uh, some things that I think that we will also appreciate. And one of the things that she does very generally is she serves. She serves. Naomi serves Ruth. You see, when we serve others, we ourselves receive great joy and satisfaction. When we serve others, when we choose to get outside of ourselves and intentionally impact someone else, God in His grace, He reciprocates that service to other people and allows us to feel great joy and satisfaction for that service. 
It's an amazing thing whenever you start serving God, even in small ways, that you just have something that wells up inside you, and it's a sense of satisfaction, it's that sense of joy, and it's that sense of, ah, I'm doing the right thing. Because what God wants for, for all of us is He wants us not to just care for our own needs and our own interests, but He wants us to get outside of ourselves and outside of our own minds and outside of our own experience and outside of Fox News and outside of CNN and outside of all the other ways that you gather media and tend to maybe be negative. He wants us to get outside of all of those things, put those aside, and He wants you to to honor Him and serve people. You ever wonder, what is God doing in the world? What does He want Christians to do? He doesn't want you to judge non-Christians. They already stand judged as non-Christians. Instead, maybe our perspective should be, I'm going to glorify God and I'm going to serve people. I'm going I'm to love God and I'm going to love others. And, I'm, and maybe just the, even the basis, think about the basis of our church, the mission and vision of our church is to be a church for God, for the city, for the nations. We can never be really for God if we're only for ourselves. We can never be for our neighbors in our city and for ourselves. We're never going to be able to serve the nations if we're serving ourselves. Naomi specifically, she's not just serving her own interest. Instead, she's looking at Ruth and she says, oh. There's potential here for maybe you to have a, a better story than what you've been handed. And notice she herself has her own grief to walk through. Naomi's also a widow. So she has her own grief. And, I, and we don't see in the passage how long she grieved or, or what the steps were in grieving. We just know that, that she is... Somewhere in the process of her life and her grief where she's not stuck, she's not looking at herself, but she's seeing Ruth and seeing this potential. There's a couple really easy takeaways from this passage, not deeply theological, kind of comical actually. Notice in verse 2, Naomi says this, she says, Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of yours, meaning to Ruth? Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So what this means is, a couple odd things in this passage, by the way. They were winnowing barley, so what they would do is they would have cattle that would stomp out the barley in in the bottom of a stall at the threshing floor, and then after it would be broken down in that way, they would wait until there was a breeze and they would pick up the barley and they would winnow the barley and they would rub it in their hand and then they would throw it up in the air. And the chaff would be lighter and with, with the stiff breeze, the breeze would take the chaff away and then the good barley would go back to the floor, and, or to the threshing floor and they would do this over and over and over. What's odd about this passage is they're doing this at night. We're not for sure. It doesn't tell us. It's not the main point in the story. But perhaps part of this story is that there was a that they knew that there was going to be a breeze on that particular night. So they were going to maybe optimize their their work on the threshing floor, knowing there was going to be a breeze in the evening because it wasn't normal that they'd be doing this work at this time. But it says in this passage that tonight he will be, at the end of verse 2, tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Verse 3. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But do not let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place 
where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. So this is not some sort of sexual seduction, just so you know. Somebody who's maybe more geared that way or even sees this from a, you know, a obscure perspective could look at that. That's not, what he, what, that's not the advice here. First, the advice could be broken down into two different things. One is just very practical advice. Verse 3. Notice the practical advice. Wash and perfume yourself, right? Mothers, how many times have you told your kids that? Go take a bath. You smell, perhaps. Did you bathe yourself in cologne today? Did you know that Axe body spray is actually not a substitute for soap? (laughs) It's a small suggestion that, that mothers give. But notice what she says. It's very practical advice. She says, wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. So wash, perfume yourself. She'd been working hard. She, because we know of what happened in chapter 2 and in chapter 1, we know that, that Ruth was a hard worker, that she herself was out gleaning in the fields, and now she's at the threshing floor. So now Naomi says, hey... Go wash. In other words, make yourself presentable. This is a time of celebration, by the way, because this is harvest time for them. So this is a time of celebration. Wash. Go put on some perfume. Set yourself apart from the people around you. Notice also, It says, then go down to the threshing floor, but do not let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. In other words, don't make yourself a spectacle. Don't make yourself the center of attention. Just good, sound advice. Put on your best clothes. In other words, make yourself stand out from the other people around. Let him notice you. But also... What Naomi said to Ruth, very, again, motherly advice, very practical advice. She said, when he goes to sleep, go lay at his feet. It was, there could be two different reasons why she's laying at his feet in this way. So Boaz is in a particular place on the threshing floor. It's evening time, so now he's just going to stay there and probably stay either on a mat or an animal skin. So he's staying there. He's got to cover over him. It was normal back in that day for servants to sleep at the feet of their master or the the person who was in charge. So the person who would be sleeping at their feet would actually be sleeping perpendicular to to the master. So the servant would be, she would be sleeping like this, like he would be laying this way and then she would be laying this way. So the two different reasons for this would be, A, because that's quite normal for a servant to sleep at the feet of their master. And the second would be, that maybe, very practically, maybe his feet will get cold. And if his feet get cold because she's laying at the, at the foot and she's trying to get a little covers, then she would have his attention because he would be woke up because his feet were cold. Again, not deep theological things, very practical. But isn't this the type of things that a mother gives? Just very practical advice. Do your homework, take a bath, put on some clean clothes. 
were those clean clothes or were those on the bottom of your clothes pile that can neither be differentiated between clean or dirty because they all look the same. So you pick the one that smells the least. Very practical advice. So Naomi shares practical advice, but it's also spiritual advice woven in here. And here's what I mean. Washing back in that day was a necessity, but it was different. Where in our culture, the average American uses between water inside or outside the home, uh, an average human just a person in America uses 80 to 100 gallons of water a day. They didn't have that kind of access to water. So even taking a bath was an optimum thing for them. So they would take a bath. This is part of the, the spiritual advice. They were to take a bath and change clothes when that preceded a special event. If you go to the left in your Bible, hold your place there. Go to the left in your Bible to Genesis 35. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. We're going to see one such example of when due to ceremonial washings, the special event that they were supposed to change clothes and take a bath. Genesis 35, verse 1 through 3 says this. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of your foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come up, or then come and let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress, who has been with me wherever I have gone. So there's the ceremonial washing was a spiritual bit of advice. There's another passage of scripture. I'm not going to ask you to flip there. I'm going to read it too quickly. This one is actually an allegorical statement about Israel and God and their, and their relationship. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, it was, and even in the New Testament, some, it's referred to the people of God being in a covenant relationship with God, the people of God with God, like a marriage. So this is the type of language that's used in Ezekiel 16, 9 through 12. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you in costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry and put bracelets on your arms and necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears and crown on your head. So not only was this practical advice, also this is spiritual advice because there's ceremonial or special meaning to this taking a bath. That God is, I believe, working in and through Naomi, and Naomi's giving this spiritual advice to Ruth, and she's preparing Ruth for a marriage. For a marriage that that Ruth would eventually have, as this story plays out, that Ruth would eventually get married to Boaz. And you see a lot of that as the passage continues beyond what we're going to study today in chapter 3, and you also see that in chapter 4. This this idea of bathing with water and washed with blood from you and putting ointments on you and how God says, I've clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you and all these things that God is saying that He's done to His people. It's the idea of forgiveness. It's the idea of being cleansed from our sins. It's, It's the idea of being 
cleansed from shame and guilt. You see, when we seek forgiveness, God washes the record clean for us. But God will not do what we must do for ourselves. God will not do for us what He wants to do or what He wants to do for ourselves. There's an amazing interplay throughout the Bible of you see God's sovereignty, that God has a plan that He's preordained, but also under, underneath God's sovereignty is human responsibility. Us doing the things that God wants us to do. Mothers, fathers, men, women, young, young men and young women. Us obeying God and doing what it is that God wants us to do. And God will not do for us what He wants us to do for ourselves. Notice in verse 7, we'll read on back to Ruth 3. But Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits. He went over to the or he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled him, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Notice what he says. Who are you? He's waking up. It's the middle of the night. Who are you? I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Aha, this is why she's there. Notice his response. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than which you have showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, which, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do, do for you all you ask. All my fellow townspeople will know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I'm near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to redeem. Good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here till morning. Boaz, there's so much I could talk about with Boaz, but I would just say something to you men or young men. You need to be a Boaz man. This should be the type of man that that you are going after. Whether you are married or not married, you should set this as a standard for your life and just surrender your walk to Jesus to become a Boaz man. Boaz is a compassionate provider. Really, you see this several times within the storyline of Ruth. Earlier in the story of Ruth, he, he provides for Ruth whenever he sees Ruth out gleaning, which was the practice. Was There was a part of the crop on the outside that was left for people who were either widowed or orphans, or people who were just destitute and poor. That there was always a part on the outskirt of the, of the farm or where, wherever they were farming to just allow people to just go in and glean from to have food so they'd survive. Boaz saw Ruth before this event happened in chapter 3. He saw Ruth and he noticed her. And he actually told the rest of the men who were there, he says, leave her alone. Let her go out with the rest of the servant girls. Let her go and harvest. Let her go get, get some crop. Let her have food. So he looks out for her. He's a compassionate provider. But also just the, the way that he looks after her and, and just guarding the other men from her. You see that Boaz is a shielding protector. He's a shielding protector. Men, this should be 
the desire of your heart that you become and that you go hard after this as well. The shielding protector. He protects her emotions by staying close. He talks to her later in this story. You just see such an openness and dialogue with him and her. And you see this even in this passage. He's protecting her by listening to her and helping her to be understood. He protects her by offering quick forgiveness of what's going on. And he also is protecting her security, just guarding her in self-esteem because after the passage in verse 13, how this storyline plays out is he then tells Ruth to basically leave the threshing floor before everybody will notice that she was there because he doesn't want to make her a spectacle because he's protecting her self-esteem. This is what a godly man does. And that's exactly what Boaz was. He was a godly man. Verse 10, notice the blessing that he says. He says, the Lord be with you. He says this a time or two more. Matthew 12, 34 says this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. I'll explain to you from the Bible what this means because it's significant to the storyline. A kinsman redeemer in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, it says this, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not carry outside the family. Must not marry outside the family, excuse me. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry in the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Notice the advice and what happens next. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, His brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, and spit in his face. Yes, that's what it says. The taking off of one of the sandals is basically declaring a a decision. It's a way of declaring a decision. Or, hey, a decision has been made. So taking off the sandals, and I'm sure you can gather by, you know, hawking a loogie in someone's face. I'm sure you can gather what that means. It didn't say loogie. That was my modern interpretation. Back to my childhood. So at the end of verse 9, it says this. Back to this passage. This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. In other words, he'll be a disgrace. He will be disgraced publicly if he will not be the kinsman redeemer. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. In other words... That man is going to be marked for life if he chooses not to be a kinsman redeemer and to help a widow in need. That he'd be marked for life. So Boaz, he he knows that he's in line to be a kinsman redeemer. He wants to fulfill, he's a man of the law of God. He is aware of this passage from Deuteronomy. And he's also very concerned 
with Ruth's future, but he wants to do everything right. So he says, there's another kinsman in line before me. We'll go to him first. And if he chooses to redeem you, Ruth, then great, you're taken care of. But if not, Boaz says, I'm going to step into that role and I'm going to fulfill the duty. I'm going to rescue you. You see, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ is the kinsman redeemer for those who have been saved. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He, meaning Jesus Christ, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. When a person confesses and they repent of their sins and they acknowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin and they ask Him to forgive them of their sin, Jesus steps in to be our kinsman redeemer, redeeming us from the weight of our sin, from being condemned of our sin. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Another connection here, I'm not going to take us there, but you can read this for yourself in Matthew 1 through 5. It's right in the genealogy, one of the genealogies of Jesus that oftentimes just gets glossed over because of all these just words and names. But if you look in verse 5 and you look very closely, what you'll see is that Boaz and Ruth are named in the genealogy of Jesus. So God was fully aware of everything that was going on, and He knew how the history line would play out. And He knew that Ruth would play a significant part, and He also knew that there would be a mother-in-law giving motherly advice, and her name would be Naomi. And that Ruth herself is known in this passage as a, as a woman of noble character. I love Proverbs 31. It sets such a high and even unrealistic standard for mothers or wives to be a Proverbs 31 woman. And the reason why I say it's, it's such a high and lofty goal is because you can't do it on your own. You can't do it by yourself. You can only do it with God's help. And you can only do it with the forgiveness and grace because although this is the ideal, we don't live in the ideal. We live in the actual. But yet we have the grace of God. Amen? This is what it says in chapter 31 of Proverbs, verse 10. A wife of noble character who can find, she is worth far more than rubies. I want to end today with the, with the story, an amazing story of a woman by the name of Susanna Wesley. This is the mother of John and Charles Wesley. An incredible woman who endured some very difficult things. She's known historically as the mother of Methodism. She herself was poor. She was married to a penniless preacher. He himself was very dysfunctional. He was put in prison two different times. Her home had burned down two different times. She lost nine children in infancy. And get this, she gave birth to ten more. Moms, take a deep breath. And so she persevered throughout 
all of these tragic things. Husband was a preacher of the church in Epworth. And he was actually in prison for financial mismanagement. So then they replaced the pulpit that he once preached in. And, and that pastor, the preacher, wasn't doing a good job. And the church was starting to fall apart. So she took, it in, she took matters into her own hands. She launched a Sunday school in her kitchen for her kids. But then because of the impact of this, this mother, it went beyond her kids. And then other uh, people started to be attracted to that. Her neighbors started to hear about it. So then the group swelled well beyond her house and they started meeting in a barn. But before long, there was a couple hundred people that were actually meeting. And at the same time, the church that her husband once pastored was just basically diminishing at such a severe rate. And now people were going into the barn and they would just go in there to to listen to her, read sermons, sing psalms, or even just listen to her pray. People so desperate. Not to mention all the things that she was doing for the church at that time. She also schooled her children six hours a day. Educated her daughters and her sons in the exact same way. In addition to that, she gave an additional hour a week of undivided attention to all of her children. All ten. How could a woman go through and deal with such loss of nine children and then husband who is dysfunctional, part of a church that's dysfunctional, and yet she has an authentic walk with God? How can a woman like that and a mother like that persevere through all this adversity? She was a praying and a believing woman. That's how. Historically, it's said of her that because of her children and she couldn't get away from her children because of her commitments and all of that, that she would pull her apron up over her head and that was her prayer room. So she'd pull her apron up over her head and I can just imagine if you're one of her children and you see mama praying underneath the apron, you don't bother mama. She's praying. And so, so they did honor her and she would pray underneath that apron and then the prayer meeting would be over when she'd pull the apron down and she'd get back to her duties. You may say, well, how in the world did she do that? Of course, she was a praying woman. She was a believing woman. But you know what? She was a mother. She was a mother. So she nurtured and she cared. She ministered. She wasn't perfect. But through her commitment and through their nurturing, John and Charles Wesley would found the Methodist movement. Now, millions of people practice the Methodist faith, even today, in 130 or more nations today, because two of those kids, seeing that example of a praying, faithful, persistent mother, and they went out and they impacted the world. Moms, never think that what you do is in vain. God knows, God sees, God's using it, and He appreciates what you do, and although we don't always say it, I'm saying it for us today. Thank you, moms, for the difference you make. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for loving us first, loving us always. I thank you for all of the mothers that you have just blessed us with. All the mothers and godly mothers who who have prayed and pleaded and they believed and they persevered and they've given just good advice and they've given spiritual advice and they've walked us through difficult things. God, the nurturing side of, of our mothers shows part of your character to the world. I praise you, God, and I thank you, Lord, for sending them. And Lord, for the person who's here today, and maybe they don't know you, and maybe they just feel even condemned because of their own sin. Lord, when the service is over, I pray, God, that you just continue to work through your spirit in our lives. And allow us, God, as we leave here, to to be people who are mindful of the sacrifices that other people make. Let us honor you and glorify you and serve others with kindness and kind words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.